There are no Martian architects, there are no Martian buildings, and yet, Mars is waiting to be built. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England, Rob Allable and Matt Russell. Oh yeah, Louis Kahn. Louis Kahn, tell us a bit about Louis Kahn. Louis Kahn, an architect with a deft turn of phrase, mm. had a lot to say about bricks. He did have a lot to say about bricks, and I, I particularly yeah. we we were tossing and turning about tossing and turning, tossing a coin about whether it was going to be this one or uh, yeah. or the sun didn't know how great it was until it first hit a wall or, or reflected off a wall or variations on that. Um, yeah, but of course, shall we let people into a little secret there, Rob? We should. I should let the cat out of the bag, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is the cat in the bag? Well, is it a Schrodinger's that, that was, cat? That was a. That was <laughs> yeah. That was a collaboration um, between Louis Kahn and the GPT three AI mm. when we punched in a request asking it to give us a quote. Yeah, we couldn't. Based on yeah, Louis Kahn. couldn't come up with a quote, so I said, "Give me an inspiring quote about architecture on Mars by Louis Kahn," and that's what it spat yeah. out. It's not. Yeah. I don't think it was too bad. No, no, amazing. Almost like it's so, almost like it's sentient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've been talking a lot about AIs uh, uh, when we've been chatting because, of course, we've been getting stuck in on the Discord mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with our new um, Space Art channel. So yeah, worth just having a quick chat about that. It's been great fun with the other what the other patrons. I, t- I tell you, what's been great fun about it? A, I, I, I really am trying to get it to generate the next podcast logo as you know i like to change it up every couple of years or yeah. so been trying to do one where it's where it's me and lynn so it's it's like right. a sort of female character and a male character in space type okay. thing trying to maybe keep the lego theme so it, it's been chucking yeah. out some interesting it's been chucking out some interesting little pictures i haven't quite got it yet um but but it's kind of really interesting but i thought one of the really interesting things is how it sort of plays in with you know, space imagery that's really, really popular or, you know, like designs of Mars habitats. And obviously that this is what this episode's yeah. about is Mars habitats on the whole. And it's like how it generates something like that and just how how inspiring it is almost. Like you you, you can put in a Mars habitat and it'll, it'll spit out something pretty cool. And then, and then my question to you, Rob, is how different is that to a sketch that an artist or an architect or a engineer or scientist might be putting together for an actual Mars habitat they're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So we, the, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of debates in the, in the art and illustrating world and in my sector a little bit as well about the, the power and potential of this, these tools and, uh, and also some, some, some grave concern about what they might do to employment for, for artists and illustrators. But, but they, they definitely have to be engaged with and grappled with, I think, if you work in that sector and feel to understand what's possible. And I think there's people who are doing some really interesting work using them as tools for inspiration mm. um, in much the same way that you would do by compiling precedents, looking at ex- other studies and examples of artwork, drawings, visual information, uh, and then undertaking your own process of making to, uh, to combine and create new inspirational images. But of course, the speed and, uh, and rapidity of, uh, of the process is, is, is mind-blowing that you can turn out so many variations so quickly. 
Yeah, um, and cheap and, and pretty cheaply, really. It's no, it, yeah. you know, you can. I've been doing variation upon variation, and you know, for a ten pound subscription to Mid Journey yep. a month, it's just, yeah, just yeah. like wow. That's just it's just particularly bonkers. It's funny you 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 say that you have you're having a sort of debate in the architectural world. It's it's like a debate that no one wants to have in the music world, <laughs> in the music industry. But I right. but I do you think that there are I mean that technology surely applies just to virtually any any place where you've got some form of creative design or you need some you know some inspiration or some you know yeah kicking starting point just seems to be un- unbelievable like absolutely I, I mean as a process we, we, uh, looking out into the world soaking up references and other people's work and and it folding into your own your, your own practices is, is a natural part of how we all build on the, the shoulders of giants and go forward. Uh, the debate, of course, is around a lack of clarity with, about the sources and training data. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it does get pretty unnerving when an image um, comes back at you that seems to have somebody's signature in the bottom right-hand corner. Yeah. yeah that, mm-hmm. that, that raises eyebrows. Yeah, it's clearly pulling in visual images and then regurgitating those, those actual moments but what what's complicated of course is that you can't unpick it you can't unravel it to work out where the parts were and point to references or citations mm, well you know that that for me is back to that that conundrum i'm sure philip k dick and a few others sort of pointed out that your brain contains the copyright information anyway that, that that's what your brain is doing you've got you've got this big library of copyrighted information that you're smashing together to make new things that's just the nature yeah. nature of the beast, isn't it? I'd, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's complicated. But let let's not get too bogged down in AI. Other than to yeah. say, I do think it, you know, in terms of things like sci-fi, fantasy, and scientific, even sort of imagery of nebulas and things like that. It's it it's just so interesting with things like, particularly with the James Webb telescope images coming back. And of course, they're not real. They're not real. That's not how they look. Or is it? And you know, does yes. the brain does the brain do things like that? And it's like it does it does put into question what's real and what's not real. What's what's wrong with say the AI putting together a, a picture of what an exoplanet looks like with yeah. uh, with sufficient data? It's probably just as good a stab as the as the artist impressions have been anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a really interesting debate around sort of science communication as well and visual images. Mm. One of the things I've really enjoyed using it, uh, the tool for and sharing on the Discord has has been explicitly thinking about particular sort of seminal uh, science or space images and asking Mid Journey, in the case that we've been using, to uh, uh, to, to redraw, or, uh, reimagine those um, those visuals in the style of a particular artist. Mm. And for me, that's quite interesting because it covers two bases. One, to begin with, because of the murky ethics, it felt to me like explicitly citing an artist, particularly one who is uh, long since dead and beyond copyright questions. Uh, um, it's part of the way to maybe navigate through those ethics. But also to be able to rethink key moments in science uh, uh, communication using uh, painting. So, for example, one of the ones I tried early on was um, I asked it to uh, do a painting of uh, uh, the, uh, the black hole, mm. the, uh, M87 black hole, in the style of Caravaggio, for example. 
and it did an incredible job mm. of, of re repainting that image using those same sort of qualities of brushstrokes. And I think there's opportunity to, for it to be used as a different type of science communication to talk about the, uh, the accretion disc mm. or, 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 or lens, gravity lensing um, I wouldn't, uh, yeah. in a different way because it, it's been painted instead of... Yeah, the, I mean, I, I suppose you could even write in a a version like because there's lots of there's lots of different versions of this software isn't there like midjourney yeah. imagine and dali 2 and all the, these so it would be easy to imagine a version of it that that uses more scientific data so that it, it can that it that it's a, that it is a tool for science communication like you said makes the picture of the black hole which for me you know as a, as as a science communicator it's a little bit awkward because it's not great it's it's a blurry donut really yeah. and it's but therefore, it relies totally on you to come up with the story about why that picture is so amazing. Yeah. But really, yeah. you want you want to grab people's attention with the picture in the first place, or or else, yeah. what's the point of the picture? You're better off showing it at the end rather than at the beginning. But mm. so mm. it it yeah, it is really interesting. Now, you did one that I just thought was absolutely genius, which is the. Obviously, we've got SLS coming up, and we should mention SLS because, let's face it, it's, it's the rocket launch of the year, other than Vega C, because that was awesome because it had an amazing commentator on the English channel, I've heard. But the, yeah, yeah, I heard it was quite, I heard it was quite good. <laughs> but the, uh, the uh, yeah, SLS is coming up, and I've got, the, I've got an interview with a guy uh, in, in a minute with uh, who is at the opposite end of the spectrum trying to launch a tiny rocket rather than a massive okay. rocket. But it'll be the biggest rocket ever coming up. Uh, but it has the Orion capsule that it's sending around the moon. And you put in um, a certain artist that you turned me on to, uh, what, um, the reimagining of what the Orion capsule should look like inside. And I just thought it was amazing, A, that it had heard of that artist and was able yeah. to do such a good job. Yeah, yeah, it, it it produced quite a startling image, and we definitely need to share it on the website afterwards mm. with the notes. Um, but yeah, so my my what I was thinking about uh, when I prompted that image was uh, was the Orion capsule because of SLS, and I was looking at some interior photographs of the capsule, and uh, and, and frankly being pretty disappointed. Um, and we get straight away into discussions about uh architecture versus engineering and the quality of the space that people are expected to inhabit for you know for any period of time and um and straight away my mind as it always does in these situations raced to the work of galina Valshova that you talked about mm. on the show before the russian architect who uh was involved in des designing uh much of the interiors of the uh, Soyuz and Mir uh work and uh generated a a, a beautiful body of work of watercolors and drawings illustrating the interiors, but critically brought uh, an architectural and interior design ability to the table. I thought very carefully about the design and finish quality of the spaces that astronauts might be expected to live in. So the prompt then for the AI became uh, uh, illustrate the interior of the Orion capsule in the style of a Galena Balashova watercolor. Mm. And, and, and it felt like what, what could have been almost. Uh, I don't know, have you seen a picture of the inside of the Orion capsule? Well, I I have, and my question to you is: as as an architect, are you impressed by the interiors of the Orion capsule? But before we should get, before we go on, if anyone who who wonders what the Orion capsule is, imagine the moon landings with the with the, with the moon capsule that went to 
and did the moon landings. This is the new version of that. This is this is um, this is NASA's new version of that for the moon landings that supposedly are taking place not that long from now. Although it, the Orion capsule itself won't go down to the moon. That it's still it can only get to the gateway around the moon. So it is to it's it's basically a ferry to take the astronauts to and from the gateway. So it will come back to Earth and drop in the ocean. So it's a, it's a yeah. big version of the old moon capsule. Not not too different in design, but yeah. Looking at the interior, are you impressed as an architect? Is that something that Galena would have drawn? <laughs> There's an awful lot of things to bang your head on. Mm. That was my that was my first reaction. It, it sounds like a crude summary, but but in such a compact, tight space with a number of people floating around in zero gravity, uh, the interior finishes, the positioning of objects and seating and things, I'm sure have all been you know, absolutely wrung out from, a, from an ergonomics and efficiency point of view. Um, but it, it, it looked like an unpleasant space to be in, and it looked like a space to be in that would at times be awkward to move around in because of uh, the way the interior finishes um, were were very varied and at times projected in un, you know unexpected unusual ways just because they were they were just engineered solutions to maximise the efficiency of the seat or the screen position etc. Certainly, it looks very different to the, the interior of the, of the Crew Dragon work by mm. SpaceX. Well, absolutely, which is which is sort of gone for. It's gone for that sort of futuristic. Let's let's. Yeah. It, but I mean, I when you're designing the cockpit of an aircraft, for example, do you know of any aircraft that sort of take that architectural flair into consideration, or, or do they all have functional cockpits? Is the cockpit just there to be functional? I think that they're all, I'm sure, just functional. I think that, but the line we we start to cross with this work with Orion is when we start to imagine it as a space that has to be inhabited for long periods of time, mm. uh, for for a period of time that involves you having to engage with uh, ablutions and sanitary issues, yeah. and privacy issues and sleep. Uh, you know, very human experiences as opposed to just uh, functioning as a pilot for, a, for yeah. A, for well, an eight hour. well, of course, this will be the first time that you'll have men and women travelling to the moon. It'll be right. the first time that women have gone beyond low Earth orbit. Right. If, if they are to travel in the... If they are to travel... I mean, actually, that's a good point, whether Orion is going to beat Starship into being the first time that a uh, that a woman esca- right. escapes yeah. low Earth orbit. So... Yeah. He, but I, I'm kind of thinking it's it's got to be it's got to be Orion that's going to do that. But yeah, um, surely, sh- well, surely, sh- sh- but short then, of some catastrophic. I can't I can't out feeling that virtually the rest of my sort of podcasting and YouTubing friends probably don't think so. I think they probably think it's going to be Starship that's going to do that. But uh, I, I just I, I think that seems improbable. <laughs> but uh, I, think, I, I think we I think we have to we have to hope that it's SLS. Just to just to, to be optimistic and positive about the amount of time and when it's been spent on that thing so far. Yeah. So yeah. so maybe so maybe like, but, but well, there's an awful lot of things to happen before that happens, and that's things like yeah. building a gateway. Although they are, I, I guess they are going to send, they're going to do an Apollo eight style mission, aren't they, and send people around in an Orion and back again. Yeah. Uh, which will... so I think it, from what I've read, there's 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 into orbit, there's around the moon, and then there's further out than that, which is described, certainly on the Wikipedia page or something, as, as the uh, the first test of 
a reasonable period of time and distance in this capsule. Mm. Um, and that's when I think it starts to get interesting from a material's point of view and an habitation point of view, because you're, you're having to live in that space for probably weeks. Mm. I mean, um, remember, this was sold as a bit of a, um, as the Mars... <laughs> It wasn't. It was until it wasn't that long ago that the, the, it was the Mars architecture. It was part of the Mars architecture, the Orion capsule. I mean, so right. obviously it was going to have to go with some form of habitation module as well. So, so just just checking that question of, of, of length of time. Uh, it's. Uh, I think it's uh, expected to last up to twenty-one days undocked, or six months connected to another module like deep space habitat. It's one of the statements I've I've read. So twenty-one days. Yeah, tw- 21 days. 21 days in something like that. I mean, it, right. with, with fellow human beings, sanitary issues, people of the opposite sex. Yeah, massively changed. So, so just to give this some context, let's, let, let, let's have a think about the size of this thing. Okay, So I, I had a quick look at how big <laughs> the Orion capsule was, just to give people, just to describe it, give people some imagine, uh, to imagine this thing. So the Orion capsule is five metres wide. Okay. Now that's 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 where you think right this thing's big, because that I think is a, that's a pretty wide fairing compared to mm. anything else. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think a four meter wide fairing usually is pretty much the limits that we've thus far used. So it's five meters wide at its base. It's intended for four to six people, uh, but it has an internal cubic capacity of nine cubic meters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, Let's look at that compared to some other some other ones. How big do you reckon uh, the Apollo command module was? So that's nine cubic meters. So so Orion's nine cubic meters of internal habitable volume. Okay, how big do you reckon the Apollo? Six six cubic meters. Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Five point nine. Oof. Okay. I think uh, I think I get the points there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll round that up. So uh, Crew Dragon. Is nine point three. Whoa! Oh, okay. so it's so it's actually so there's more space in internally in a crew dragon than, than yeah. in Orion. Wow! Apparently so. According to this, the stats I've been trying to compare and look up. Anybody wants to check me on that, please write in. Uh, but to, to take a moment to to uh, to think about some of the folks who spent time in Soyuz and Gemini capsules. Oof. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're, but, they're, but, to, yeah, but they're ridiculous, aren't they? I mean, they, they yeah, are. Yeah. They Shout are. out to Helen Shum. Um, uh, four cubic meters for Soyuz. Mm. Even that seems yeah. so. When you see them in the Soyuz, and there's three of them, and it seems particularly cramped, Apollo's like only 50% bigger, and then it's. It's thirty percent bigger on top of that for yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the descent module is even smaller. I think the descent module really small, two point two actually. Oh Jesus! Yeah, so and Gemini, Gemini two point five. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's considerably bigger. I mean, it, it it's yeah. bigger, but it's still yeah, twenty one days in in something that big. I mean that that is that's that's 21 days four, four people inside a nine cubic meter space okay, that's, so that 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 must be that must be smaller than say a submarine crew or or even a prisoner right a pr- that's that's an interesting comparison yeah <laughs> and then fi- fi- final one just to give it some context is apparently the new shepherd capsule is 15 cubic meters now obviously they're doing a different thing yeah but in terms of visual images and people you know from the images you've seen yeah shepherd, so yeah that yeah, you know, God. Shatner, 
high five and everybody. And and of course, uh, there's no there's no cockpit buttons and screens no. and and everything to yeah, get in your yeah. way and 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 there's big windows yeah. so that the whole the whole experience is going to be quite nice isn't it for your yeah. shatners and etc yeah. etc yeah, et yeah. but so yeah. so yeah so it seems to me that these things matter because it's such a confined compact space 21 days inside nine cubic meters you can't lose sight of these things well, i mean from some of the things i've read they you know they are of course engaging with these these questions these aren't these aren't ignored there's some of the quotes I've got here, we've got uh, uh, window shades and sleeping bags, uh, built-in shrouds around windows to allow to take pictures from deep space without glare from the cabin light. So that the window and the importance of the image, mm. uh, we've talked about a lot as, as part of that. So the sleeping bags have been streamlined to reduce the mass. So this is you know, the level of detail. They're, they're only to carry up during the launch. It can be hung in several different places through the cabin. So, but not cubic meters, but you can at least hang your sleeping bag in a few different places. It's like being a bat, isn't it? It's just, I'm just going to yeah. go to sleep here and sort of just stuff stuff yourself in a. That is pretty. The sleeping bags apparently have armholes, so crew can use their tablets before they go to sleep. That's what. I'm oh, that's that's conducive to a nice night's sleep. I find using your tablet just before you go to you bed. You can check out the interplanetary podcast mm-hmm. Instagram mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before you go to sleep. So that's currently dominated by AI. <laughs> influence <Yes. laughs> artwork yeah. um that's horrible i mean just just to reiterate the fact that in apollo 8 in there they, there's there's quite a bit of dialogue about bits of poo floating around yes. floating yeah. around the capsule and and them deny oh that's not mine it's it's not sticky enough stuff like that so it's Beautiful. like it's yeah you think oh my god it's it's a gro- it, could, it could be an absolutely gross environment and it's 50 years later and it's not not much better it it does doesn't feel like star trek just yet does it not quite so 50 years later we've added 3 cubic meters <laughs> mm-hmm. and you can hang your sleeping bags up i mean i'm i'm quite sure if any orion engineers are listening they're going to probably hunt me down i mean um yeah but- Imagine that that, that that thing of, oh, when we go to the moon, we're going to take a car with us as well. That would seem incredible now, wouldn't it? But they, did, yeah. they actually did that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, just, that yeah. just blows my mind still. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so for me, for me I, you know, I wanted to have a quick chat about Orion because SLS is an, in, an, an incredible step forward, I'm sure, for NASA. And the rocket launch will be will be huge news in the space sector but but it's for, it's Orion that yeah it, it is actually suddenly upon us isn't it the uh, SLS and I, I think it's kind of taken everyone by surprise I'm supposed to be on off nominal with with my friends Jake and Anthony from Miko and and we Martians they have this kind of spin-off episode yep. so it's worth checking out I join them once every year or so um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they've they've put me back because SLS was brought forward of all things. Obviously, SLS is 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 huge if you're an American. I mean, it's pretty big. For, it's pretty big for us. But I mean, yeah, uh, it it almost seems improbable. I like. I think you know that even Eric Berger was sort of saying that he 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 wasn't really sure he was ever going to have get to say SLS, yeah. SLS is on the launch pad. You know, and and yeah. here we are. And, and it's I'm on holiday, but I'm going to try and watch it. And hopefully, this podcast is out before it comes out because we've got to get this out slightly early because we've got to do a shout out for our guests and their Martian habitat in Bristol that we went to visit. And so, I think we, yeah. we should uh, we should talk about that. So, we 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 uh, we had a little trip, didn't we, last week, Rob? It was the first time we did road road trip. First first time I ever ever saw you in the flesh, which seems hard. Yeah. To, which actually seems quite hard to believe. We I actually had to question whether that was actually true 
but a pleasure to be able to uh, uh, take that step and uh, come out and go on the road with you and mm. take a look at the pieces as a, as a patron of the podcast for a while now. Yeah. So thank you for yeah, inviting was, me along. It was ab- absolutely uh, my pleasure. You've been, you've uh, stepped up to co-host in Lynn's absence. That, those are big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's back next month, but uh, yeah, she's she's not around this month. It is always brilliant having you on. What was good about this is I got to listen back to the podcast that we'd done on Arch- on Martian architecture before. And I learned... Yeah, I, you, I, to, you probably had to put aside about a week to listen yeah, to it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it was a two-hour drive, almost yeah, exactly yeah. from London to uh, Bristol. And uh, yeah, they did it filled that exact drive up, the yeah, one episode like of should, the podcast. So it was... I feel like yeah. I should apologise to listeners that I always end up making long episodes with you, <laughs> whittering on. So, um, yeah, so let, let's... It was it was it was amazing actually. When when I first saw that Martian habitat in the centre of Bristol, because I've been to Bristol a, a few times, so I knew that little bit quite well. And when you see it there, it's like, oh wow, it's it's there. That's that's what we were talking about, and they've they've actually managed to do it, which I think yeah. is you know a bit like SLS. I, I wasn't you know it's one of those things where you have people on the show and you're not quite sure whether it's going to happen. I'd have put it down as a 50-50, but they they, yeah, they, actually, yeah. they actually made it happen. It's really impressive. Well, uh, you'll, you'll, obviously in the interview, I, I did take a bit of time to congratulate them because I, I can't underestimate how tough it's been to get stuff built in the UK in the last sort of 12 to 18 months for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, so just getting it finished is, is to be commended, surely. And, and, and I think they've achieved what they told us they hoped to achieve when they first spoke to us. Mm. Whatever, a year ago now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was yeah, it was March. Uh, well, well, well over a year ago, yeah. And it's yeah. Um, so if, if folks want to hear the intro, they can go back and listen to that, that epic episode <laughs> yeah. last year. Yeah, and but, um, but what's interesting about that as well is that that for them is a is a hugely long journey. It it feels like the kind of journey that that people in like in the space world are quite used to making very long commitments to things. Like imagine the people involved with SLS. That that is. Like the yeah. first launch is going to be decades after the thing is first really kind of thought about. Yeah, and yeah. It's like wow. Yeah. So if you're Put, putting yeah. big chunks of your career into something, I think uh, yeah, incredible. It's taken them seven years to from yeah. inception to delivery, and they've stuck it out and delivered it. So yeah, amazing work. And, and and true to the form of artists, it's not like they're getting paid a lot of money to do it. It's not like no. NASA are giving them a salary to do this thing either. So it is. A, no. It's a phenomenal achievement, and obviously takes a lot of willpower, particularly as one of them is a young parent as well. So that's uh, <laughs> it's it's just unbelievable, really. Yeah. Um, well, we'll go on to that interview. Before we get to that interview, though. I want to play another interview first, uh, which is, okay. which is um, I, I ha- happened to catch up. I got an email from Owen Madge, who is from the Steel River Rocketeers up north, up north, North England, sort of Newcastle yeah. kind of way. He was talking about one of my favourite sort of concepts, which is to launch from a balloon, well, which is which is called a raccoon, a, a rocket from a balloon. Or a coup. And um, he's in a race. He's in a race with uh, Sir Richard Branson, of course, because Sir Richard Branson might be the first person to fly something out of the UK that goes that goes into space above the Kármán line. Yep. So might our friends over at Orbex as well. Yep. So might Skyrora. But so might this bunch of, you know, researchers and, and students and 
you know, rocket enthusiasts who've got this little club and they're trying to build a, a something that will go over the Kármán line and it launches from a balloon. And so I thought, it, this is this is like the absolute opposite end of the spectrum of SLS. So I thought I'd uh, I'd put in a quick little interview, and I really like it. He's a he's a really good guy, and uh, and uh, yeah, he, re- he reached out. So I'll, I'll well, even even before I hear the interview, I think I'm going to be rooting for the raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, got to support the underdog. You always, as an Englishman, you have to support yeah. the underdog at all times. Yeah. Yes, and Dicky Pickles, and this this particular instance isn't the underdog. Yeah. He's the overdog. <laughs> <laughs> right. So here, here right. so here is go raccoon. Yeah. So here is my interview with uh, Owen. The interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space. So I am joined on the podcast by. Owen from Steel River Rocketeers. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Owen. Thank you very much, Matt. It's great to be on. Good, good. Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm currently in Spennymoor, so northeast England. A bit of an undiscovered part of the world for, for, for most of our listeners, I'd imagine. But uh, yeah. bit, uh, Full of natural beauty. <laughs> full of natural beauty. It, well, it really is. It's a beautiful part of the world. You, you asked to come on the podcast, and I think it is a really, really interesting project that you've got going. But before we get onto the, the sort of project that's coming up, tell us a little bit about the Steel River Rocketeers. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. So uh, Steel River Rocketeers, it's basically a student lunch, uh, student-led launch vehicle development program uh, and our main goals at the moment are to educate people in the region uh, inspire any sort of work into into space and showcase the diverse skill sets that the region has to offer um we're mainly working within teesside and the surrounding area uh, area in the northeast but we have we've started working all the way across the uk now uh, and we've had a variety of members in the past not all of which have been students uh, but all of them have had an extreme interest in engineering and a very keen willingness to learn, which is the main thing that we require on the program. Indeed. So, yeah. Well, well. Tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, your latest project and and some of the sort of milestones that you've already reached and the ones that you hope to do later. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, the latest project that we're working on. Uh, well, overall, we're working towards our developmental uh, launch vehicle, which is SR One or Steel River One. Uh, SR1 is a little raccoon, uh, so a rocket and balloon combination, uh, and it's composed of a 1,000 gram natural latex uh, rubber balloon, uh, meteorological balloon, and an inbuilt stabilised launch pad, or we like to call it the cup, um, and then that carries a small a small rocket, no larger than an A4 sheet of paper, which is powered by an APCP fuel grain. Uh, the rocket launches at 30 kilometres from inside of the balloon above the ocean, uh, and only if all of the launch conditions are met. So we have uh, a lot of different, uh, we have a lot of different uh, electronics on the launch pad, on the rocket, for example, to check up a lot of pre-flight conditions. So one way that we, uh, one thing about the rocket is that we use gyroscopic stabilization because obviously launching at such a high altitude, you'd need to accelerate to a very high speed to have any sort of stabilization from just fins. Uh, so we like to use gyroscopic stabilization just to get that initial stabilized uh, bit of flight there um so one of the conditions for example is to make sure that this isn't that the rocket isn't wobbling on its spin-up mechanism while it's rotating at about 20 rotations per second um mm. so it, as long as that that one uh, condition and then obviously a few other conditions one of which being that it's pointing vertically upwards uh once those conditions are met the rocket then launches from the 30 kilometers 
bursts through the skin of the balloon with its uh, needle skin tip, accelerates to Mach 5 within a seven-second motor burn, uh, and then this will hopefully achieve apogee above the 100-kilometer carbon line. So, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah, so it's a suborbital launch, isn't it? This It is, yeah. Ballistic trajectory suborbital launch. Yeah, so, I mean... Just as a little bit of background for for some of the listeners who aren't super clued up, and and I do love the I do love the name Raccoon, and this has definitely been one of my I, I I've always been really interested in this idea of launching rockets from balloons, and I suppose yeah. you're in a kind of race with another rocket launch system mm-hmm. that that avoids the rocket equation for a large proportion of the flight, so it avoids that the, the uh, trying to get off the ground because. I mean, yeah. just to, to put it as bluntly as possible, a rocket carries all the fuel that it, it that it uses, and which mm. makes it kind of a bit annoying because most yeah. of the fuel it uses is to carry the fuel that it needs to use later exactly, on. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, you, you've got around this by using a balloon to carry up to a certain altitude, but you're in a race with uh, old Dicky Pickles at uh, exactly, Virgin yeah. Virgin Orbit, who's uh, who uses a jumbo jet to carry yeah. his uh, rocket to a certain altitude. Um, exactly. but, uh, but, uh, the, the scale is, is somewhat different, isn't there? Is, is there, is there a sort of scale, is there a scale constraint on the raccoon style rocket? Do you know? Well, effectively, um, your main constraint is the balloon that you can use. So I've, I've seen recently, uh, NASA's experimentation with a lot of super pressure balloons taking up quite high, high weighted payloads. And, uh, obviously the, the more pressure your balloon can support and the bigger it can get, uh, the higher payload you can take. So, Ideally, if you're talking uh, for an orbital payload, something like that, where you need a significant second stage to be able to drop it off into orbit, uh, you'd be talking probably a lot much larger balloon than what we're using now. If not, I suppose you could probably use more than one balloon if you're willing to suspend the package from below. But uh, our system currently, it sits actually inside of the balloon, so the, the cup is effectively a sort of stopper on the bottom of the balloon neck uh, and then launches from inside, which offers a few more... Uh, a few more advantages to uh, to a normal ground launch, as you say. Um, Dickie Pickles is off with his uh, with his jumbo jet, but with it being inside of a balloon, um, we can launch in the vast majority of uh, weather conditions. Because obviously, since we're coasting up to thirty kilometers of altitude before we actually launch up in the stratosphere, the vast majority of weather conditions are completely mitigated. So it's uh, it's quite a robust system that can launch in quite a lot of different times and. I'm hoping that if something causes Dickie Pickles to get a little scrub in there, we might be able to run in under his nose and uh, grab the title away from him. Well, yeah, and that title up for grabs is the first first people to go above the Carmen line launching from the United Kingdom, right? Yep, that's exactly right, from the UK mainland. Uh, we're also aiming for the first student group to be able to uh, independently verify that we've passed the Carmen line. I believe and that, that would, would that be globally? And that would be globally? Yeah, yeah I believe so. There was, there was an, uh, a student team in the US that managed to pass the Carmen line, but uh, but that was not independently verified. So uh, if, if I, I think that they did manage to pass it, but obviously no one's sure. Um, so if we, if we could do it, then we would be the first verified uh, space flight from an all-student team. Yeah, well, that would that would be an achievement in itself, wouldn't it? So what's the what's the gas inside the balloon? Uh, helium at the minute we are we're using helium mainly because it's inert and it just simplifies a lot of the you know launching a rocket engine from inside of a, a, a gaseous atmosphere 
it simplifies a lot of the issues. But obviously, with it being a scarce resource, we are looking at converting over to hydrogen in future. Uh, but as I say, it's just it's got a lot of disadvantages compared to helium when it comes to its its inertness, if if you will. Uh, but yeah, as I say, less scarce, so a lot cheaper, a lot easier. I guess if you've got yeah electronic systems or things spinning up, any 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 spark or friction sets the whole thing on fire. If it's yeah, hydrogen, exactly. is, is is that the thinking basically? It is, yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's possible to if if the uh, rocket were to ignite in a hydrogen atmosphere, it's possible that the brief amount of time that it would be in there would be acceptable uh, to not alter the rocket's trajectory. But you know, it's it's playing with fire in a literal sense, so yeah, we're not one hundred percent sure yet. But you know, more testing in the future, and we'll see if we can get to something hydrogen hydrogen based instead of helium. And and what sort of milestones have you done so far with this with this particular launch system? Well, we've we've achieved a fair bit so far. Um, we've been so one of the things that we focus on is uh, educational outreach. So we've been working quite a lot with the students at Eaglescliff School on our model rocket flights. Uh, these are basically just different staged flights trying to get uh, different altitude milestones up to one mile from the ground. Uh, because that is a rough equivalent of the engine grain that we'll be launching at 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. uh, in interestingly enough, that if we launched our uh, our 30 kilometer engine from the ground, it would only reach about 1.6 kilometers of altitude, whereas launching it from 30 kilometers, it actually enables it to reach an extra 72 kilometers of altitude. So uh, incredible. Yeah. Is that is that presumably that's all just down to atmospheric drag? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, stratosphere, you're above 99% of the atmosphere. And, you know, with with the la the lesson of drag, the lesson of uh, of necessary propellant. So it allows us to have a very, very light launch vehicle and also the possibility for scalability in the future. Yeah, and I pres presumably the, the actual rocket itself doesn't need to be so robust because it's not reaching such high temperatures and, and max Q and all those elements. Yeah, exactly. That's another thing. I mean, the, the aero frame that we're currently using is a, a three, 3D printed, I believe it's either PLA or ABS. I'm not 100% sure on that. But uh, yeah, just a 3D printed plastic aero frame, which obviously wouldn't be great in uh, from a ground launch perspective when you hit max Q and pressures mm. such as that. And, and, and of course, the fairing has dual use because it, it, the fairing itself, you're saying actually... Uh, pins the balloon and, and bursts the balloon on its way through. It does, yeah. It's It will have a pin uh, extruded from the top of the fairing uh, so that that will contact the, the skin and then pop the balloon as it launches. And we've done a lot of testing on the ground for this as well, um, as well as like other various tests. I think we're up to about 20 different balloon flights now. Uh, we've done, I mean, the first test that I was involved with was the MicroMars uh, payload test where we launched a payload suspended from a balloon. Mm -hmm. um, that worked very well. Uh, we, we recovered it out of a tree from a parachute. Uh, to be honest, it took embarrassingly long for a group of engineers to figure out how to make a longer stick out of two long sticks. <laughs> but, uh, we got there in the end. <laughs> a couple of shoelaces were involved, but we got there. And uh, yeah, no. So uh, as you say, yeah, the the penetration tests we've done on the ground as well, and uh, all sorts of all sorts of different um, power ratios were done for motors and. We've not seen any sort of significant deflection from that either. So just because it's the balloon skin so taut when the when the uh, pin impacts it, it just retreats straight away from the pin and doesn't create much friction. Yeah, and I, and I guess someone might be asking, why not just ride the balloon all the way into space? 
Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be an ideal world. But uh, obviously, once you get above a certain uh, a certain atmos- uh, atmospheric pressure, the balloon expands to a rate at which it can't contain the, the pressure within it, uh, let alone that balloons work on a buoyancy principle. So once mm. you've escaped the atmosphere, you've no longer got a, a, a fluid to become buoyant in. So there's a limit to the height that you can reach with a balloon. Yeah, it's just always so pesky, isn't it, to get off the earth? Everything seems to be everything seems to go against you. So, what's the uh, desired? What what sort of payloads are we talking about here for, for well, this rocket? Uh, currently, we're well for the Steel River One rocket. Uh, we'll be taking up a, a bit of a simplified payload, so it'll be mainly made up of a, a GPS module, uh, a few transceivers for communication, and a HD camera for uh, capturing the flight itself which obviously with using gyroscopic stim, uh, stabilization will be a little bit spinny to start with. But uh, hopefully once it gets, uh, once it's no longer in powered flight and it, it's climbing to apogee over the course of two minutes, uh, it'll the, the air resistance, or, or at least what's left of the air resistance, will hopefully slow the spin down. But um, the, the payload that we're hoping to take up on later flights, suborbital flights, would be the thumbsat module that uh, our mentor and chiefs created. Um, that's a, It's a small CubeSat uh, platform that's below 14 grams in weight. Uh, and then you can take upwards of about a 25 gram uh, payload on top of that. So the, the end flights, once we've actually achieved space and we're starting to drop off packages for experimental use, those will be of around that order of uh, payload. But the rocket that we're using for SR1, I believe the dry weight payload is 160 gram dry mass and 200 gram fuel weights for a, for a total of 360 grams and that that's the whole system that's that's the whole rocker so yeah weighs less than a than a coke can actually yeah so it's a, yeah so give us some some sort of idea of size is is it like a sort of coke can in size yeah i mean roughly uh, we're talking less than the size of an a4 piece of paper so around the length of a 2b pencil uh, it's it's quite a small very very small rocket but uh, it's it can it's quite advanced for a solid rocket it's got a, a complete aluminium motor house and motor case and it's got an um uh, a vacuum expanded nozzle so it's designed for vacuum flight uh, so obviously no thrust whatsoever on the ground but perfect up at 30 kilometers altitude um but yeah it's it's quite an interesting little rocket to be honest for basically being a model mm. yeah yeah absolutely i uh, well i mean yeah so t- well tell us a little bit about your mentor then is, is this uh is this sean whitehead is that is that yeah the it is so uh I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of background first. So uh, Steel River Rocketeers is kind of three groups working together. Uh, you've got Thumbsat over in Mexico. Uh, you've got Scotech, uh, Scoutech, sorry, in the UK. And then, of course, SRR in the sort of Teesside area in the UK. Uh, Thumbsat is the group responsible for the design and production of our Femto satellites, ground stations, and most of the software that we use. Uh, it's mainly designed and built by Dr. Antonio Hernandez, who works in our clean room production facilities in Mexico. Uh, Scoutech is Sean Whitehead's personal R&D company. Uh, all of this has been started by Sean, but he, he, his primary involvement, I would say, is in his R&D company. Uh, and that's the group responsible for the manufacture of most of our hardware, such as the motor casing and nozzle. Uh, and then, of course, there's SRR, which is the student team responsible for taking all of these parts, putting them together and flying research missions ultimately with the goal of reaching space but uh sean's he's done a lot of work in the past 
uh, ranging from working on the uh, the Beagle Two Mars lander, or some instruments that were on the Beagle Two Mars lander for the uh, the British Interplanetary Society. Uh, and he's also worked on projects including robotics, uh, exploring the chambers in the Great Pyramids. Uh, he's also been working on a project uh, to place a, a sculpture on the lunar surface. Uh, and the latter of these projects was kind of presented him with an issue, which was how do I cheaply and reliably test a small sample of material that I want to use for the sculpture in a high en uh, high particle high energy particle vacuum environment? Uh, obviously. In order to do this, a CubeSat would be the best sort of choice. But, you know, with the current launch programs and the launchability of CubeSats, you've got to look at a rideshare. Uh, rideshare is very expensive and a large wait time as well. So it just became very obvious to him that there was a massive market out there and a need for this, uh, this sort of low cost, low fuss and short wait launch system. Uh, so that's, that's basically what we're doing here is um, trying to create a launch system where we do the paperwork, we launched the rocket. All the customer has to do is provide an experiment that fits within the mass budget and works with the the thumbsat satellite bus. So I would I was I would assume then. So the, the the overall goal is to get things into orbit, which obviously requires a little bit more delta v, a little bit more thrust to yeah, get things exactly. into orbit. You you'd need to presumably for testing. For testing materials against radiation, you'd have to get maintain mm -hmm. some form of orbit for it to, oh, yeah, to have any kind of a, a reasonable time exposed to that radiation. Definitely. Um, so, so, the, the flights that we're using at the minute are about uh, eight minutes of microgravity time, uh, but then obviously uh, there'll only be about 30 seconds to a minute of that above the Kármán line. Um, yeah. So exposed to that sort of uh, you know high energy environment, it's, it's not going to happen on a suborbital flight really. So uh, we are we are aiming for orbit in future, but as you say, it's it's quite a significant jump. So it'll it'll take a little while past getting the uh, the space shot out of the way. But uh, mm. no, I mean, as I say, the system's very scalable. Um, if we add another balloon, for example, you've got double the payload weight. Realistically, we're well below the payload limit of the balloon that we're even using at the moment. So realistically, it's it's very possible that we could get orbit quite quite soon after the fact. I mean, I say I say soon and long at the same sentence but you know <laughs> um, i'm hoping for the latter i'm hoping for it to be as quick as possible yeah well you obviously in uh what i've noticed in in the in the world of rockets is everything happens much quicker than everyone thought yeah exactly <laughs> not so yeah so i it's it's always it's i mean let's face it it's incredibly difficult to get things up to the Kármán line. I don't mm -hmm. think I don't think anyone other than rocket scientists really appreciate just how difficult it is. It's a it's a common question that I always get is, you know, why don't why why don't we go to the moon all the time? It's like, well, because it's insanely difficult. And, <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. and so so I, I absolutely wish you all the luck in, in the world. I, I I kind of am rooting for you in a way to 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 beat to beat Dicky Pickles or Orbex <laughs> or Skyrora to be the first people to I launch from uh, an orbital launch from the UK, it'd be absolutely, no, absolutely, be absolutely brilliant. But uh, yeah, what an exciting time, eh? That we, we we might see over the next couple of years quite a few different methods of getting above yeah, the Kármán exactly. line by lots yeah, of I different mean, uh, from the UK. I mean, yeah, who would have thought? Who would have thought? I've got the horizontal launch facilities being built up. Got the vertical launch facilities. It's going to be quite an exciting time to be walking about the island like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite a good time to be an uh, an interplanetary podcaster. 
I'm I'm winding myself up for it. Well, thanks very much. (laughs) Thanks very much for coming on, on the program. Where can people go and, and, and check this out? And have you got a call to action? Oh yeah, of course. So, um, we really are trying hard to accelerate, uh, the, the launch date to get this space shot out of the way, but obviously the best way to do that is more hands on deck. Uh, and we've had a little bit of trouble with colleagues throughout the pandemic and stuff. So, we are looking to get as many applicants in as, as we can. Has uh, got plenty of room for recruitment. Uh, so if anybody's interested, you can find out more information at www.steelriver.space. Uh, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page there, there's an application form and you can fill that out. Or you can just email me directly. Uh, that's steelriverspace at gmail.com. And just to specify, it's O-W-A-I-N steelriverspace at gmail.com. Well, thanks very much for joining me on the on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I wish you all yeah. the luck and I'm sure the Spodcats will too. Thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure being on, Matt. Nice to speak to you. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. There you go. That's the weird concept of launching a very, very small rocket. And it's only, you, you have to see the pictures, uh, Rob, because it's, it's just a little bit bigger than a Coke can. Sounds amazing. It is. It, I'm going to have to take a proper look at it. God, if they, if they manage to do it, it, it will be absolutely awesome. That that whole idea that they'll be the first sort of uh, volunteer group or, or sort of, you know, um, amateur group to, to get over the Kalman line as well would right. be pretty phenomenal. So there must be a bit of a rush on around the world for that as well, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and only being the size of a uh, Coke can, they'll probably be spared idiots like me complaining about the quality of the interior. <laughs> well, well you know. uh, it, I, so anyway I did, tell me about your decor yeah i did see in, i did see inside it was a little bit if you were an ant you'd be pretty disappointed with your um your accommodation yeah yeah okay so a few, a few slightly less cubic meters <laughs> than the orion capsule I guess this is the ham part of the ham and cheese sandwich of interviews this week. Is the <laughs> yeah. is the interview with Nikki and Ella yeah. from the Martian House Project, who we had on over a year and a half ago. And this, yeah, is... well, previously we, we spoke to Nikki and Owen, didn't we? Mm. Owen Pierce from Pierce Plus, the architect. Unfortunately, Owen uh, couldn't join us for this interview, um, but it was great to hear this time from Nikki's colleague Ella as well, and together the two uh, main protagonists on the. Uh, on the podcast yeah it's some confusion there about the owens that we're having on the podcast <laughs> too many owens. too many yeah. owens so yeah here, here is that interview a cute the interplanetary podcast is alive all right well welcome ella and nikki to the interplanetary podcast thanks for returning to talk to us about um the launch and arrival of your martian house uh, thanks for inviting us down to your event last week. It was great to to, to see it being completed. And first of all, I want to just sort of congratulate you on getting it done and and, and grappling with what seemed like a huge team of people. Um, it, it looks like you you had to pull in support and favours and assistance from all manner of folks. So so that seemed like a huge task. So well done. Possibly a bit like uh, what it would do, be like to deliver the, the actual thing with a huge team. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's what we always kind of said. Um, like years and years ago when we set out, you know, we we read about like um, you know, we're just interested in space and space missions, and there's always this sense that like, you know, it's such a, a feat and there's so many people involved. So we always had this idea that like ours, you know, in a small way would be like 
a little bit similar. Like it yeah. really yeah. take a lot of people to get it off the ground. And um, yeah, it was nice at our launch the other day because we got all of those people together in a room and, you know, there were a couple of hundred people there and really everyone had contributed in some way, yeah. whether it was like, you know, bigger roles like uh, the structural engineers or like the carpenters that were actually on site or the, the guy that was our site manager and the architects, but through to, um, yeah, people who are now going to volunteer their time to to make the interiors and also just, you know, friends who like helped, yeah, with various smaller jobs for free. Well, co- collaboration was a big part of the discussion that we had a lot on the, on the previous podcast looking at this topic of uh, inhabiting Mars and teamwork. And it, if I remember rightly, NASA had something like about half a million people working for it in the late 60s, if, that, if I remember the numbers right. And it, it felt like you were probably up at those sorts of numbers almost. Um, so well done. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, so uh, you want to tell us a bit about what the key challenges were, perhaps, in terms of... Uh, I'd be interested in um, what was learned during design development in relation to the conversations you were having with the guys at University of Bristol around Martian challenges and technical challenges and how that shaped the final design. You, you, I think you mentioned in the, in the, in the presentation that, uh, that, that Owen had undertaken a lot of work to, to help deliver the project, and I'd be interested to hear about uh, your thoughts on what challenges he, he was faced to try and make it a, uh, you know, a, a, a tangible, as realistic as possible experience in that, in that respect. Um, so tell, tell us about the input that you had perhaps from uh, the University of Bristol got. Yeah, so they advised on the project and advising on things like um, how um, the house would protect someone that would live in it. So, um, yeah, so the design, including that, thinking about um, stuff like the lower floor would be built underground, probably in the lava tubes that already exist on Mars to protect you from the radiation. And then the top floor being inflated on arrival and then filled with the Martian regolith to create thick walls. Um, And then really the conversation about how someone might live in the house because um, we put these big windows on the top floor and then being um, the big windows being a point where um, radiation could come into the house yeah, we were wondering that on site, actually. Yeah, we had a lot of conversations about that. There are some louvres on there to help that. And then we spoke yeah. a lot about the ceiling window would be filled with water that would be a, a separate store for water and then yeah. also would be turned to ice to right. protect you from radiation. But also... Being in the top floor, you couldn't be in there all, all the time. Yeah. The, if there was a solar storm, you'd need to go underground. Okay. Um, so kind of talking to Bob and Lucy about the practicalities of that, um, that you could spend some time up there and then back. That's why you'd sleep under the ground where you'd definitely be away from the radiation. Yeah, it was quite interesting, like, you know, that that conversation with them is about, like, the the trade-off between um you know that like engineering uh principles how you would protect yourself but the trade-off between but how would you how would you want to live 
how would you mm, protect mm. yourself like protect your own well-being and you yep. you just couldn't live without a window yeah yeah, yeah we, i mean that that was one theme that keeps coming up a time and time again when i've had rob on as the uh, as the co-host is this theme of engineers wanting particularly with something like space and with mars always wanting the simplest and the and the lightest of often of course because you've got you've got to take this stuff to mars solution and often that means forgetting about the human element of having a window and of course you know if the engineers had their way there would be no window on the international space station so i mean that it's it's a theme that comes up absolutely loads and i kind of guess that that's rob's job almost as like as an architect is uh, is that tightrope between human need and engineering need, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that 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 debate was was evident and manifest itself in in your design in the final in the final piece. It was very interesting. Um, I think Matt, we're probably going to get emails now from engineers, no doubt, having raised that that mm. complaint again. But uh, I think uh, I'm really interested in how those technical challenges aren't just technical issues to be overcome, but they are things that shape your experience and movement around the house at different times of day or different times of Martian year almost or between storms and calm calm periods yeah um, yeah how we inhabit a space is seasonal on on here on earth and is could equally be seasonal in a sense on Mars too yeah like you wouldn't spend all your time upstairs in our house yeah um, unless you wanted a tan wow <laughs> A dangerous term, yeah. Louvers on windows, we've got uh, ice or water in, in, in openings as well. And then, of course, the other key space you got up there was the hydroponics. Look, look, a really interesting project. What's the, what's the goals and the hope for that particular project? For Katie Connor, working on that? Yeah, that's Katie Connor. So she's um, an artist in Bristol who's working um, with some botanists at the university um, as part of a funded project by the Brigstow Institute. The title of the project is called How to Grow Livable Worlds. So again, like her work is, it is that kind of balance between like functionality and well-being. So it's it's dealing with a lot of similar questions, um, which is why we really wanted her to work on the hydroponics because um, it can be quite a, a sterile kind of um approach to uh, growing plants and interaction with plants so it's looking at it in a bit of a different way it's looking at the sensory properties of plants as well as their functionality and how the plants make you feel and that's what her research really is about not just I mean she is you know really growing the plants hydroponically and that in itself is very experimental um, yeah, so there's there's you know there's it's similar. There's the real science there, but there's also the the well-being side of things that she's researching and exploring. So is that shaping workshops that you're doing with the public? Yeah, so she's doing some uh, workshops uh, that she'll run herself, where people can um, come and interact with the plants. And the focus of the research is more about how the plants make you feel. Um, she's inviting people to take part in uh, like a tea drinking ceremony um, with using herbs from the plants and be amongst them and um, 
yeah, kind of talk about their experiences and, and how that might be different to plants on earth or it's a kind of place to reconsider our relationship to plants in yeah. the same way that we're re- we're using the house to reconsider our relationship to all of the objects of everyday living. Her, mm. her work is yeah about reconsidering our relationship to plants in a similar way. Right. It's really interesting. When you say tea drinking ceremonies, my mind races to, to, to Japanese tea drinking ceremonies and its relationship to, to room layout and architecture as well. Um, as a as a communal collective thing again, um, so uh, I mean I mean I mean there's even a, there, I mean there's even an English equivalent to that, isn't there? Really, essentially, yes. it's just yeah, <laughs> probably seems less ceremonial, but it probably is just as much. And I guess that that does reinforce that that whole idea of there are certain things that are mundane in life that you kind of still need, and you kind of I got a sense of that through through the when we when we had a look round, you know, like even just seeing like you know a recognisable toilet or a shower mechanism and things like that is is kind of important, isn't it? Yeah, and some of those things we hope to kind of change. Maybe the shower might change whilst it's there. We don't know. Um, uh, the toilet won't be changing, I don't think. But the shower, we could change it and take the head off and see if we try to make something a bit. Of, um, that uses a bit less water, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's the thing as well. We want it to really be changing and experiments and new ideas of living, as well as those things that we really recognise. Have you have you got a list of things that you kind of want to achieve like that in terms of the, the experiments that you want to run, the 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 kind of workshoppy things that you want to run to see to see if you can sort of generate some information some I guess it's like you yeah you could approach it kind of two ways around you you could kind of start with like you know this is missing we need this 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 or you could kind of look at it the other way around which I think is more the way we're approaching it in that like well here is a semi-blank kind of canvas and what do you think is missing and that will lead uh, what is made. But I mean, you know, we've, yeah, we've got lots of ideas about it. But um, yeah, we're trying to be to let it be quite led by the participants and their interests, really. So, so we have this call out, yeah, for the volunteers to get involved in that process. And so many people in Bristol applied. It was so exciting. All of these people who were just thinking about. I guess kind of future living, but in quite different um, in quite different ways. Like we had applications from people who are architects or um, who work in design, but then also just people who were talking about how they make their own hair dyes out of vegetables. Um, so yeah, so they're they're going to approach it. We're I guess we're kind of um, so we're like kind of holding together and supporting them with what they're making. Um, but it is going to be quite led by them. So it's about, yeah, what they think is important to everyday living and also working together as a group that, you know, they might come to those ideas together as well. So, so you've kind of provided a platform for like a whole, a whole, hope, 
a whole host of other sort of stakeholders or experimentalists, etc., in your in your area, or, or yeah, how how sort of broader catchment area are these interested parties? Where where are they coming from? Um, well, they're all from Bristol, and they're just people who've volunteered. So it's about them joining us to make these experiments and ideas and artifacts to put in the house that help us imagine how people might live in it. Um, and they're just really, they're just really, they could be anybody in Bristol who wanted to be part of it. So I guess I don't know if that answers your question. Well, well, I, I, what, I, it's what I like about Bristol, actually, I guess for, for, for some of the American listeners, et cetera, et cetera, it's quite nice to point out that Bristol is that type of city that's full of um, sort of, it's very arty, isn't it? As a city, it's got a, it's, it's, it's a lot of sort of free thinking. It's a, it's, it's probably one of England's sort of freest thinking cities and sort of experimental cities. Mm. So it's kind, of, it kind of feels as though it's in the right place, at least for that kind of um, interaction. Yeah, yeah, we did feel people really, people really got the call out. We were really pleased with all of the applications we had and we felt like we could really choose people who really had enthusiasm to want to be part of it someone like you know they just wrote stuff like I've got tools and I'm ready like type things like I'm ready to come and make or um really getting that what we're getting at is also what can we build here and now and that that might look a lot more low tech and simple than people's first instinct for thinking about future living on Mars because of the project being about living with limited resources um, and looking at it through that lens. Yeah, and I think actually on that point, like, yeah, people people seem to really get that message. Like, if you look at the design of the house, it's exactly the same, you know. It's like, well, what can we make out of this idea, this design, but how can we make it here and now on Earth? What would it look like? And who would be involved if if we tried to bring it to life? That's it's the same, it's the same process really that's that's designed and built the house. As the I have to say it's, for me, it's absolutely absolutely the most sort of successful part of this project is, is that, that that openness. And you, you clearly de- delivered on on those goals. I think because um it's just such an unusual um, mindset to be in for for this type of project. To uh, for a project a building some sort of analog that seeks to be technically uh, comparable to the Martian experience, physically comparable for you to hold to that idea that it should be the a, a blank canvas that you've talked about. I think is uh, very unusual for this type of discussion debate, and and I'm sure going to be the most successful part of it. Um, it, uh, with the volunteers that you've got coming in, it sounds like you've had a great response. Is that sort of waiting list closed? Or could could listeners apply to be involved or offer anything, or, or are you already full of ideas and events? Yeah, it is closed now. So yeah, it was. I mean, it was hard choosing like how to do that. Um, but yeah, we thought we would have this call out, and that happened while the house was being built. So you know, there was that sense of kind of excitement around it, and what's it going to be, and and then people read the information and volunteered their time, and then we chose from there. But um, we have been having some, uh, and yeah, so and we wanted to choose the people um, 
so that we can really allow ideas to develop over a long time and, you know, really get into some real making. Um, but we, we did want to allow opportunity as well for people to participate on a bit more of a drop-in kind of basis. Um, so we've been doing a little bit of that over this this month, over August, because it's the summer holiday. We had some uh, workshops that were kind of suitable for families and they've been about making some of the textiles for the house. So we've been, um, we've been making... Uh, fabrics personalizing fabrics that might be used for like duvet covers and we've been using like dyes made from vegetables and um printing flowers onto fabrics so there's there is a bit of an opportunity there for like a lower commitment way of um of, of designing and making in some way is there an um, uh, opportunity or um uh, any aspiration for uh, ongoing debates with um uh, you brought architects and, and Owen Pierce and others involved technically. I'd be interested to, to hear about whether or not there's opportunity for them to reflect on the spatial arrangement of the house as it responds to these workshops and inputs and whether or not there's a sort of a, a future iteration could be managed or, or adjustment. Just reflecting on what we talked about with the tear ceremony. If, if I was to be in any way critical as an architect of that space, think about what you've just described, I wonder about the space's ability to, uh, to provide space to gather in, a, in smaller groups in terms of the way the room sizes work and layouts. So I'll be interested to know whether or not the scope for uh, for ongoing reflection from the likes of you, Brought and, and, and Owen. Mm. Do you think that's possible? Well, we are doing a, an, an event, which is a panel discussion event on the 1st of September at MSHED, but right. we'll include the architects. And right. I think there'd be, I'd hope there'd be discussion about that type of thing. Uh, beyond the project that's happening now and the changes like that, it's just, you know, at this point, it's been a massive thing to get to this point. So thinking about... Yeah, sure. Um, I guess, like, yeah, when we get to the end, um, yeah, I think, you know, we'll, we will need to take some time for, like, reflection and, yeah, and include the wider design team in, like, reflections on the project mm. as well. Mm. We'll, have, we'll make, like, a, there'll be a short documentary film um, so we're documenting conversations that are happening and, um, yeah, that will form part of how we reflect on, on the experiences and what we've made and, and learned, I guess. But, yeah, that it would be interesting if, yeah, we particularly made space to reflect on, on the design and included the design team in that. That's a good idea. Yeah, obviously, we spoke to you, I think it was March 21 that we spoke to you. And, and I th- so, obviously... A lot. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. What What are the things that have changed since we last spoke to you in terms of the design of the actual object that we now see, the house that we actually see in uh, in in Bristol, and and what how you were thinking it was going to look? Is it is it pretty much how you were imagining it, or has has it been radically changed in that since we last spoke to you? Um, well, so there was a few things obviously to make it happen with pretty much everything being donated and the cost of things going up um, some design changes happened to make it possible and one of them that was quite good is that we got a little workshop space that isn't part of the Martian house um, but is a space where we're doing our workshops and that when people come for a viewing that they'll it will be the first part of the house that they come into so that was quite, um, you know, lucky 
that that happened. Um, yeah, it was actually like a, a structural decision that in the end. So there was there was meant to be the so the upper floor, which sits on at, on the Martian landscape in the scenario of Mars, it was meant to be like a steel frame, uh, like a kind of modular steel structure. But it was um, nobody would donate the steel frame because it was too expensive. So. Um, yeah, this other shipping container was introduced as it was a structural decision. But yeah, it was it was quite useful because it gave us this workshop space. But it's essentially the same. It's exactly the same concept, really, as you see it from the outside. And actually, I don't think the concept has really changed that much for quite a long time. The the inflatable top level of the house really does look quite a lot like the first concept drawings that were made mm. in. What two thousand yeah. and nineteen? Yeah, and um, yeah, and this like compact living space underground. Um, there was meant to be an airlock, and that was omitted in the end. Um, for it, was, anyone to make it. Yeah, we couldn't get anyone to make that part. Yeah. So it was omitted right. in the end. It would be nice if our group wanted to make an airlock, but I don't know if they were too busy yeah. on other things. What 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 was that feeling like when you first saw your? Because I mean, it's obviously the thing that the real draw to it is is the big gold inflatable yeah. uh, outside. What what was the feeling like when that when you first saw that in real life and it? And it was up. Well, when we arrived, it was like the deck was there and the space, and we walked up and we saw it was laid out. And I was a little bit worried, Ella. Were you? I was like, yeah. it's quite small. Yeah. Maybe it will, after all this time, maybe the, it's not really going to stand out. And then, or, and then <laughs> like like a spinal tap. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it was being inflated the first time, we were very close to it and like stood on the deck watching it inflate. Um and we were like, okay, yeah, it's pretty looks pretty good, shiny. And then we walked down the steps and stepped back, and then you could really see, like, wow, it was quite a um surprise Ella did you feel the same and then actually like you know so we were there most of the day and then as we were leaving we both uh walked like to the other side of the water to the other side of the harbour and then it was like the further and further we got away from it the more you can really like see it and see it next to the other buildings and it yeah it's it's almost like better and better the more distance you get on it so it, yeah, it was uh, like a kind of slow burn. <laughs> well, I think I think what I love about that aspect is is that the, the final form in that, that top section, the inflatable golden uh, dome at the top, is it is joyful and uh, and, uh, and and attractive and appealing and, um, uh, and and playful as well in its in its shape and its form. Um, and I think that's a really valuable part of the discussion about what it might be like to live on Martian as well. Uh, the, the, the visual quality of it, how it sits in the landscape and how it appears is part of that, that process of, of making a home, making a place you're proud to live in or want to want to inhabit. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a really nice description of it. And, um, 
yeah, that's like kind of grown on me as well, I think. Actually, like uh, lots of people have just been like emailing us like general kind of comments or questions and things. And somebody did email a week or so ago just saying like, I love walking past this. Like maybe they live nearby and they said like, it it fills me with joy. I really yeah. like it. And I think that is a really nice description. It is it is a joyful like kind of um, structure. There is something yeah like playful and quite friendly about it. Mm-hmm. And that is quite a different look to um, some space design or you know yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. future uh, future, well, future future living kind of architecture. It is quite different, and that's nice. Oh, I was quite surprised how quickly the seagulls had sort of. <laughs> <laughs> decided that it was it was fine you know they can they can land on it yeah i was worried about seagulls to begin with after it went up but i, I think i did say to nikki what if a seagull like pecks it and pops it <laughs> 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 yeah yeah it's, it's one part of the the analog that doesn't quite work does it it's not a direct comparison with the no, that, yeah, apparently, yeah, apparently there are no seagulls on Mars, which I find hard to believe. <laughs> Did you at any point think that you should fill it full of regolith? I noticed obviously you've got uh, big heavy sandbags to hold the thing down in, in wind, but what, did you ever think you know about what, like, years ago, it? Like literally years ago, I do remember talking about that in design team meetings and we kept saying like, you know, no, we've, we've got to actually fill it, haven't we? And <laughs> the architects were like, no, like we're not, you know, you can't, you'll be able to reuse it if you don't do that and also you know just how are we going to do that kind of thing and I think now that it's there I I see I don't see how that could have happened really and also then you really if you'd done that you you would really have been making a permanent building which we Mm. haven't made it's it is a temporary structure um yeah if it was filled with like some sort of Mars substitute solidified concrete, we wouldn't yeah. ever take it now. In terms of the way that you've built it, obviously you, you've built it out of necessity to be a temporary building. It's not like can't, you can't just go plonking Mars houses in the middle of Bristol. Um, is, is that in some ways, does that does that add to the, to, to the realism of it? Because... I can imagine that that something like that you wouldn't want to necessarily. You, you are kind of building in more of that way, having more of that mindset that it's probably only going to be temporary, in terms of particularly that the sort of upper structures. Mm. Well, you mean you mean that the the nature of a temporary structure is appropriate? Well, I mean you can probably describe it better than me, Robert. In terms of yeah, the way that you would think about um, something temporary rather than permanent in the in the in the Martian landscape. It certainly in, reflects in the, Bristol the, landscape. the challenges of, of, of transporting and packing up and bring, bringing something to the surface, I suppose, would need to be lighter weight materials and temporary in a sense. Yes. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, we took in the design process, I remember we did talk quite a lot about um, the design is based on like those temporary kind of structures in, in a way because we talked a lot about... Um, uh, like disaster scenarios or like uh, refugee scenarios um, and where there's some buildings built in a similar way where you'd have this uh, inflatable kind of formwork or like earth bag structures. Yeah. Um, so it does kind of borrow from those like um, right. quick and, yeah, relatively temporary way of building. And I guess for me what you're saying is really how do we imagine 
the people who live in this house on Mars to be living? Are they there temporarily or are they there permanently? And I guess that's also interesting um, thing about when we were designing and thinking about the kind of scenario that you're giving for the people that live there guide what the house is. For example, thinking about this not being the very first people to arrive on Mars, it being a, a small community, and we've got a design for a wider base so that it's a, it becomes about living well rather than just surviving. And so I guess the, the idea of is it permanent, we're thinking like, you know, people living there for a year or so, Ella, do you think? Um, yeah, so that you need to think about living well, but um, it's still not being all of the answers are solved for you and, and decided, so it's not permanent. Yeah, I mean, there's a very different mentality, isn't there, from going to live so, somewhere where you rent and somewhere where you purchase. I mean, so a lot of people can understand that feeling of 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 being there just for a bit even if that's two or three years, it still feels like it's not like a home home. And so that surely connects to, to the things that uh, Nick and Anna have been talking about in terms of the way you, um, what, what objects you might bring to Mars, how you temporarily inhabit a space um, because you recognise that you're not going to be there forever. So how do you make it feel like your, your home? Now, that, that, seems, that reminds me of some of the things I think you, you talked about before about workshops you'd had where people had very different views about what, how much of Earth you should bring with you and how you'd make a home and a place. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was, there was one interesting discussion we had last time where, where you mentioned people were trying to make it more like Earth and then someone came in and said, oh, this is, this is cra- you're, you're crazy. What you want to do is make it more like Mars so that you know you're living on Mars. Have you, have you had more of those kind of discussions leading up to this? And, and, do, you, and do you anticipate you're going to have that kind of thing come up again in the workshops? It already has a bit in our, with our group because I think people naturally do start to think about, okay, if I don't have very much and I'm away from Earth, what shall I take with me? Maybe I want to have... Um, we had an interesting discussion this week where someone was talking about a painting that they really liked of the rain that they thought they would want to include in their house because it was so much of Earth. Um, and it reminded me of... Um, those discussions about it can become a bit of a just a place for lots of memories of earth rather think rather than thinking about living and it is nice to include one or two things like that but trying not to get into a spiral of it all being only remembering yeah and I guess yeah that's how we're trying to frame it as well like yeah for the stuff that's being made it's about how would a future resourceful community work um, so that you know, there's the emphasis on like the 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 day to day kind of um, living in a different way, you know, and that and that kind of informs um, everything that you that you design. Yeah, I mean, are, are you able are you able to displace yourselves out of that process so that that you're you're not influencing it in terms of in terms of that people coming to visit, people in the workshops, et cetera, 
And even the fact that you've you've been involved with the design of the of the building itself and and the location that it's in, the city, the vibe of the city, everything. How do you how do you sort of avoid like a sort of groupthink or you your you two in particular influencing people it to to too great an extent? Or, or, or is that something you worry about? Or, or, or are you able to, to completely remove yourself I, I from the I don't think it should be totally independent of any influence of us. I think, in fact, because of going through such a long process, seven years, then we're having a lot of the conversations again and again. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I really think, um, you know, it, it that is part of the work. You've, you're not done after you've had one, the conversation once um, but also in doing that then we can bring the research that we've done to create the house into those conversations and also other people's perspectives from having them in the past so rather than it being about um, you know it's this isn't a science exhibit it, it's also not mm. a scientific study so it's not about um, the influence it's about uh, maybe broadening those conversations and allowing people to go past maybe their first thought and think and um, beyond yeah I think that's kind of our role like where we've been like thinking around the subject for such a long time yeah we can add that um like a prompt yeah to to kind of deepen the conversation or broaden the conversation like Nikki said um so it it goes beyond, you know, like a lot of conversations on earth about sustainable living, like they're really like they just operate on one kind of level or like people might say, the you know, they think they know what the right answers are and then you're just saying the, the same kind of things. This is a chance to like to look a bit deeper and really kind of turn the situation inside out and examine it from a new angle. So... Yeah, that's our role, really. I think we can like um, we can like frame the discussions within. We've created this uh, the parameters really for the discussion and this context in which to make and think and um, try out new things. Yeah, I love, I, I love the way that this project has potential to. Uh, to create a body of work and outcomes and outputs that uh, effectively sort of have a right to take, uh, to be placed in the sort of canon, should we, should we call it, of research around Martian analogues, but but to come from an arts-based practice. The idea that that, that body of work that, that, that people might turn to in future could now potentially include uh, a project which is consultative, an arts-based practice that, that, is, that is developed and uh, worked on for you know, a reasonable period of time. I think is I think it's fantastic, but, uh, so I, I guess what I'd be interested in there would be outcomes and how you if you have a an image for how you might collate some of this work, how it might get recorded or written or or compiled. You know, is it is it are there formal papers to be written to be uploaded to the NASA research server? Are there uh, box pops video footage uh, sketchbooks? How, how do you imagine collating this in this body of work? I was working with, um, I guess you um, would call him possibly a researcher, um, uh, Tim Senior. He's part of an organ- organisation called Supersum. And they um, 
they look at working in these multidisciplinary teams. And Tim is going to be coming in and he's going to be interviewing um, the participants in our group and creating a response to that. Um, most likely a piece of writing, thinking about um, uh, really how communities work and the outcomes. So that's going to happen. And then also we are going to have our blog, which we're in club in we're going to be documenting on as well. I'm interested in the idea that there's particular formats or outputs that suit the nature of the work you're doing. But maybe there's a question there about how you also consider how this, how the existing sector or field, ex, you know, expects to receive or engage with information. There might mm. be a body of people out there who are only used to downloading quite dry papers from the NASA server, for example, who actually need to be encouraged to look at other alternatives and other outputs. So that's perhaps a bit of a challenge for, for, for your project and for, for Tim, doing that work yeah or if someone was listening and they were like I can help you yeah, with that then yeah, 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 that would yeah. be interesting as well um yeah yeah is there is there any other I mean aside from this project you know is there is there other examples of a kind of arts-based approach to these kind of questions I mean in terms of like you know space exploration you know living on Mars journeys in space you know being in a space capsule etc etc that i mean there's a, there's hundreds of these kind of research programs going on which are about human experiences do you know of any others that are sort of similar in approach to what you've done here in a kind of arts based practice i don't know of any that are presenting themselves as artworks and are i guess there are lots that involve people and if you want to be a member you can join or maybe not lots there are a few that are like that are groups of people like I think um of course there's the Mars Society which is a members organization famously but um and then last time I mentioned the Calgary Space Workers Society there is a group that is more like um a inventors group and um but anyone in that area of Canada can join it and um you know in that way they work in a way that they're not connected with a big um you know government agency um but I think we I don't I'd be interested to hear if there were other um artists making similar there's been there's been mm, one project yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, I think we might have discussed it on the yeah. You, you had an interview on the show, Matt, didn't you? With the the um, the collection of art pieces that were going to be installed. Yeah, going on the ISS. to going to anti ISS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All of us seem to have an interest in some arts based kind of practice. You know, I'm a musician. <laughs> Rob's a, an architect. So, but it, and I guess that's what makes this project resonant with or resonate with 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 people like me and rob is the fact that we can you know you get to see its kind of validity whereas you know as an engineer you might just go well this is these are the question we need to answer and here is the experiment that we're going to set up and we're going to do it using these protocols and i guess your the, the way that you're approaching is is less protocol driven and more of an experience and it's also well experience is always I try and because we don't want people to come to the work and think they're going on a Martian experience but I guess it's more the art it is a 
provocation to think about the future. It's something to get people thinking. Mm. Mm. And that's the art side of it. And um, yeah, that's the, sometimes people say to me and Ella, so what is your artwork like when they're stood inside? (laughs) 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 Because it, you know, it looks like something so different. Um, Yeah, but it's a conversation starter and a thought provoking um, artwork by, and it is about doing and building and having that perhaps um, you could get caught up in having to solve all of the problems and having all of the answers and never actually getting to the point of building something. Mm. Um, And I think in it being an artwork, it allows itself to kind of, like we spoke about before, it can leave gaps and not have all the answers because that's the invitation for people to come and help uh, fill those and talk about it with us. I have to say, I think that that, that that was perhaps you know a discussion that that might have given Matt and I pause for thought last time when we spoke around that idea. But but having been there and visited the, the building and seen what you've achieved, I think I think you've absolutely delivered that and to be commended for that. It's really powerful. Um, I, I, I think my main sort of interest really is that you've you've taken a technical question, what's usually seen as a technical question: how do you how do you survive on Mars, and 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 leveraged social and cultural questions out of it as well. And I think that's that's a really powerful part of the project too. Um, one of the things I wanted to just just reflect on as well, and just to record for some listeners, is I I, I really liked your summary slide on your talk and launch events around the why Mars question. Some of which we touched on, but you, you had a series of bullet points. I'm just gonna I'm gonna read out because I thought they were really good. Why Mars? A resource scarce environment. There's nothing available at easy, easy disposal. A place where fixing broken items is essential. Living carefully within a circular economy and a lens for how we live on Earth. And I, th- I just wanted to re- just to read that out because I thought it was a great summary of the project and what we're trying to achieve and reflects on why I think people out of other sectors should have some interest and pay attention to space science questions and enterprise questions because uh, they're questions that are equally applicable to living here on Earth um, and taking that same mindset back to, to living on Earth as well. It's the reason that I even end up getting involved with this podcast and this discussion because it helps shape my practice. So it's a a really good summary. Thanks. Uh, So over the last year since we last taught, what has been, give us your sort of number one challenge, your number one surprise, and your number one favouritest moment. Oh, God. The challenge, well, the challenge was just getting it through building regulations. The house. (laughs) It seriously, it came down to paperwork and making a building possible and, uh, you know, and getting the donations and things like that. It, it's very exciting that that's a real challenge of building something in a public place. Yeah, I was going to say, when I looked at such an enormous structure like that and, and, and the way that it sort of is in, the, in, in that particular part of... Bristol. It's not like it's uh, you know hidden away. It's a it's a it's a bit of a thoroughfare <laughs> to say the least. And it's and it, I was thinking, crikey, that must have taken some work to for you to get the permission to do it. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, I absolutely hats off to you for for that because yeah, that that obviously looked difficult. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. it's so, not so, related because the last year. It, it, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, I don't, I don't know. I think I think actually, I think when it comes to going to Mars, I think they're going to have to jump through similar he, uh, hoops of uh, planetary protection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. I think there's I actually. I'm not. I, I, I imagine that there'll be just as much paperwork to fill in <laughs> for someone. But uh, yeah, it's it, it, were there moments where you actually thought that this just isn't going to be possible? We, we we're being banjaxed all the time. Um, there was a week when I think there was. It was like, we're so close, but is this really going to be able to be built? And this close to it after so long in the last, hmm. you know. Um, was that quite uh, recent? Was that quite recent? It was probably six months ago. So, Oof. yeah, it was quite, yeah. So that's been the hardest thing in the last years. Just really simple, practical thing. Again, that highlights the fact that this is an unusual project because it's a Martian analogue that is in a public space, which has brought technical challenges and, and you know, building regulations and paperwork issues, but is an probably unusual, map, you know, to, to, to think about uh, a Martian analogue experiment which chooses to site, place itself in a public in public arena. Um, mm, and that absolutely. sort of underlines the point of the project, maybe, doesn't it? And then the biggest surprise... Yeah, I thought it would look good, but I was really surprised how good and how much of a spectacle it is in Bristol. You walk along and you see it. And um, after so long working on a project and you meet people and they ask what you do, and now suddenly people are like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Because, you, can, you know, if you're in that area, you can spot it. I th- yeah, when it, like, I, I found it almost a little bit daunting when it, like, yeah when it became like so visible I think we're both like it's it's you know it's been such a long journey of getting here and now it's like actually here and it's like whoa like yeah you can't miss it and it's um it yeah it's a funny thing for like you know artists like put this like public artwork in public space like it's very definitely uh, yeah in public space and here it is for people to respond to and um yeah what's what's been your favorite part of the, the whole project the whole so far project well i mean there's so many different stages um yeah but you've got to have a favorite I that's mean, what the, I always... <laughs> the best bit is always um just like working with people really that that point when um it comes into contact with people and you hear what people think what it makes them think about um those conversations are always the most exciting bit and that's why it's really nice that now it is here and we're in this phase where we're talking to people about it again and like and really making things talking and making things um because there has been a lot of of not that of you know like kind of organizing and planning and like just trying to hold the whole concept together over um many years so yeah it's great the best bit is like when it meets people when the idea meets people and then people have more ideas yeah has, has, has there been any kind of disappointing interactions with with people I, I, have you have you had any sort of people who just don't get it who 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 are you know that's been the nice part actually when Ella was saying that I thought actually also one of the brilliant things has been about how people have got it I mean of course there's some people who aren't gonna but actually they're probably the people who haven't really read or looked at it in any way and those people actually so far haven't even 
walk through the door to come into a workshop yet because they wouldn't get that far so yeah so far it's felt like um quite really nice as an artist to feel that people are understanding the work and your intention which is interesting as well because that that kind of has only been enhanced by the fact that the project has taken so long that you know like the conversations people are having now on earth about resources and um, living more resourcefully are quite different to seven years ago when we first started it. It's like the context, you know, kind of shifted around it and that... What sort of positive sides to have taken that long? Because yeah, you, definitely. You've got, yeah. You've got yeah. workshop attendees who understand isolation yeah. and, and understand It's very good, I think, that it did take so long because mm. I think it wouldn't have been the same project if it hadn't taken so long. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it needed the time. It needed the time for us really to develop the ideas um, and for it to reach the scale it has, it needed the time. And also the time is something that people respond to when they hear about the project being like, whoa, you worked for seven years on this. Then they, you know, it's not just something we only just thought of. They're like, wow, and that kind of um, helps those conversations. Um, kind of the, the dedication and the commitment to do that is you know, helps those conversations. Yeah. Uh, have you have you got an eye on another city yet? In terms of if have you thought about moving this on and and going somewhere else? Like particularly because one of the interesting things that you talked about last time was this whole idea of setting something like that up in a place where people lived very differently. You know, somewhere in Africa or somewhere in Japan or somewhere you know where where they lived differently. Have you have you have you started thinking about moving it or have you uh, worked hard enough to get it where it is now we do definitely want to tour it definitely the top floor um because it's so movable and what that would look like depends on whoever wants it it's still open like some people started talking to us but nothing really decided about what that could look like and it, would, it, would, it, would it just be the top floor? Would you try and move the whole the whole structure? I mean, the, the original saying? idea was that we would try and move the whole structure, but now because of the way it's been built, it doesn't seem so possible. It prob- it really is the top floor that is the most tourable. Um, you know, it's and it's the, the same as the scenario on Mars. It's lightweight. It packs down really small. It's easy to transport. So. That is how that could um, go to different mm. places on Earth. You could also imagine that top floor being bolted to a slightly different bottom floor on, on other yeah, projects. Yeah, it uh, could happen. Yeah, because I kind of wasn't expecting you to be dragging all that all that sort of plywood and stuff around. I was expecting it to be that you would, you know, find the same sort of collaboration, which, which, as Rob said at the beginning, was unbelievably impressive in terms of the amount of architects, the amount of building firms, the amount of <laughs> you know consultants and everything else that you've you've had involved. I think, I think Rob was basically saying it's, it's virtually everyone in the trade. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like <laughs> so, so all the major contracts in the UK on that last slide, you know. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they'd do it again for us. I think there would need to be a lot of money to help mm. to do something of the scale again. And also actually me and Ella 
you know, we haven't really been paid for a couple of years on it and working other things yeah. and stuff. So that yeah, yeah. part of it, it would, it would, if a venue wanted it in in a large scale and had the money to do it, that's the only way that that would happen. But luckily, because the top floor is so portable, there is that option to do it in a much smaller way. Um, but equally, that's the most exciting part of the design, anyway. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I, but for example, I could be a little, I could be a, a, a Japanese artist sitting there in Tokyo, going, ah, do you know what? I, I really want to run this in, you know, in my smaller town outside Tokyo, and 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 phone you up and say, right, I'm, I've managed to persuade all these contractors to build me this beautiful bottom bit, but I need your top bit. That that is is that the sort of thing you're kind That'd of waiting for? Yeah, it would be brilliant. Great. If they also couldn't build the bottom part, we could just put that top part in a box and put it on mm. the plane. It's not yeah. that. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just... It's quite flexible. You could imagine it like in inside a gallery space or something like that or inside a museum. I think it would be quite exciting. Mm. Um, it doesn't yeah. even necessarily have to be outside. It would it would do something different, and um, there would be different conversations inside. I mean, I, I mean, I'd quite like to take it to something like Glastonbury and just have it as my tent. Yeah. It would be pretty pretty, pretty cool, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah proper proper glamping. I think, yeah, uh, it would be. I, I, I'd have one reservation about taking it to somewhere like Tokyo, though. Actually, is that you, you wouldn't get the same sort of. Uh, uh, shock and pleasurable reaction to the big gold dome, I don't think, because uh, Tokyo particularly has uh, a pretty long history of very unusual, idiosyncratic, surprising pieces of architecture. So I think if you took it there and, and, and inflated it, everybody's go, oh, yeah, just another building. <laughs> because there's so many unusual structures over there that would just fit right in. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, it, yeah, it, it'll, be, it'll be great to see it move around. And I, and I wonder, just coming back to that question about outputs that we talked about, Nikki, and, and how you summate some of this work, Maybe there's leverage there for some of your outcomes to try and attract other bits of funding and opportunities to reuse it and, and test it again elsewhere. That'd be really interesting. Yes, that's true. Yes. This is, this is what we achieved with, with version one. Look at what we could do if we had version two. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing as well, you know. I mean, even though it feels like, it, yeah, it was such a, like a feat and a journey to get it here, it mm. is a prototype. You know, mm. yeah, like maybe it's prototype one and it, yeah, it could be remounted in some other way and then that's the second prototype. So remind, remind us how long the workshops are going to go on for. How long is it going to be in place? So we've got um, family workshops happening um, just till the end of August because it's along with summer holidays. And then we'll be working with our group of um, Bristol-based um, people in our workshops until the end of October and across that time there's a chance for people to book viewing so that they can go to um to see the ground floor you can also book workshops in the hydroponics that Ella spoke about earlier and then if you want to know more about the design and the design team including um the architects and the scientists that have advised on it and um, then there's a discussion happening on the 1st of September in the M Shed that people should book right now to come to. Yes, Great. that's okay. Any particular place online that you want to point people to? Um, just the usual outlets. Our website, 
buildingmartianhouse.com and all of our social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, and Facebook, all Building Martian House. I think Twitter's just Martian House. Also, actually, we're doing this, um, we're having this VR version of it made that if people want to go in, then there will be. Yeah, because then people all around the world can virtually go inside. When- yeah, when, when when is that available and when when where well, is pretty it? Pretty soon, it'll be on Matterpoint. I don't know what that is, but that's what they are going to host it on. And um, it's with this company called Future Virtual, is it? Yeah. And, um, yeah. So we'll put it on our social media and um, on our website so people can find it. And there's going to be two versions. Yeah. One that they've done like last week. Uh, it was the day of the launch. They came in and they. They filmed the inside and then they're going to do another one at the end so people can see the difference um, of front that, that of, that's happened across that time. Yeah, so it's a 3D scan of the whole, the whole structure. Yeah, 3D scan yeah. Of, of the whole building that you can, um, you know, just pick walk around through. or you can put a headset on and like actually walk through it. The Interplanetary Podcast is... Alive! Yeah, there we go, Rob. Another epically long interview that we've managed to concoct for the listeners yes. there on, yeah, the, we, yeah. on this subject. Getting a bit of reputation now for that. What's your big takeaways for this whole project and our interview? My big takeaway is that I hope that this goes into the canon of Martian analogues uh, as a body of research and outcomes that brings a different sort of thinking to the table because it touches on both the technical challenges of making a space and a piece of architecture and a building on Mars, but it leverages the social and cultural stuff. And I think for me, that's a really powerful part of this, mm. this project. What it, what it also highlighted, or what was really interesting, what I hadn't thought about before, is uh, there's a limit, of course, to what you can achieve with a Martian analogue on Earth, because there are technical challenges that you just can't replicate anyway. And it wouldn't be that valuable to try to. So there's aspects that they talked about with the windows and filling it with water and the uh, the grills and fins to try and reduce solar radiation. And there's aspects of that that you can achieve and tackle. Uh, but you can't really get into the nuts and bolts of exactly what it would be like to use that material in, in situ. Only so much you can do. But... That challenge is, uh, is, is then met by the fact that what you can do is open discussion and consultation and dialogue around the actual metaphysical questions mm. of what it is to live in that space. So, yeah, powerful stuff. Like you said, we, w- we were talking about certain people from the Mars Society who are accelerationists, et cetera, et cetera, who, are, yeah. who would probably not be so thrilled with a project like this because it, it, it seems so... You know, it's 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 touching at the kind of fluffy edges of, and I don't mean that insulting. It's touching at the sort of softer edges of a hard problem, yeah. and I think so. It's 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 not Mars Direct. It's not it? it's not Mars Direct, and it's and it's no, no. and it's none of the sort of crazy projects where you just get people to sort of just go and oh well, we'll fund it by we'll fund it, it like people think about the funding of these things more than they think about the actual the the purpose and the human. 
the human element of it is just it it, it yeah. seems so absurd and the, the point of sending people oh, it's, it's actually a little bit i'm going to bring it a little bit back to that kind of ai thing what's you know there, there seems to be very little purpose of sending humans to mars unless they can have a human experience there yeah. we may as well just send um our, like mega sophisticated robots with almost sentient intelligence there you know yeah, you know it's yeah. they they they'll be able you know in 10 years time god knows what you know what are like the 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 ability of our robotics and and machines will be really and then that kind of starts to make a bit of a mockery of what it's like why what of why sending humans in the first place unless you unless it's to have a human experience in a sense that was why I why I responded the way I did earlier about the Orion capsule mm. Is, you know, you know, why are we sending humans? What, what's their what's their role? What, what part of the human experience are we going to be able to research and understand better by putting more people in that nine cubic meter capacity? Oh, yeah, they'll have sleeves for tablets in their sleeping bags. And I'm exaggerating massively. Yeah, the, the, I'm sure offending <laughs> lots of people. But I'm just always keen when I come on the show to just to hold to this question and this debate. Yeah, I, I, I and I am actually going to just quickly defend engineers and scientists. Yeah, I think you because, because obviously engineers and scientists are human beings that think about these questions all yeah. the time. And you know, I, I in my own profession, I get people coming out out from outside in who think they know what I'm up to. <laughs> In education, yeah. you, they they yeah. think that oh, you should be doing this. You, well, well, I am doing that, but it, and it's like, and I think that it's quite easy for an artist or a or a you know or an architect or or whatever to come in and and think that the scientists and engineers aren't thinking about those problems when they're human beings down the pub, very well read, I'm sure, and and read science fiction of have, have heard these criticisms all the time and think about these things all all the time. Yeah. But then that you know, an engineer has a job to do, and that that job is to to come up with solutions that work. And so maybe they're perceived as not necessarily doing, not thinking about the things that 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 you're kind of that other people are finding more important. But you know, the, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm keen to acknowledge that you know I, I am in much of these conversations sort of exaggerating to make a point, really, <laughs> yeah. just to keep this de- and to keep this debate rolling around that quality. And certainly, you know, I mentioned briefly that question of whether or not the crew dragon interior uh, engage in this discussion anymore. Uh, it certainly looks slicker on the interior and looks like it's been put together with a, with a different sort of level of care. <clears throat> but equally, I suspect there's as much thinking going on there around branding and image. Mm. Well, it's, it's uh, as, as there is the actual experience of the, the astronauts. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, it, it, it looks like the interior of a Tesla for a reason. Yeah. You know, yeah, and it's exactly. so yeah, but but then branding in itself. I know we kind of, particularly in the music industry, we th- think of, used to think of it as a dirty word. Branding itself is really important, isn't it, as part of a human experience? Human experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, I suppose we build relationships to those brands. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm so used to talking to scientists and 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 people like that, it was it's quite hard for me to interview artists. In, in a way, because you, you're trying to drag out a question out of them with that's too direct. It's too direct, yeah. and, and and you know you're never going to get a de- direct answer off them because they're they're kind of thinking slightly differently. It's it is they said it themselves, didn't they? That it's it's the it's the 
thinking on a different level that, that, that when people talk about, you know, like environmentalism, that we're always talking about like it on one level. And, yeah. and I think there is an, I think there is an element of truth in that. Yeah. So sort of m- multiple layers, polyvalent answers, ambiguity hmm. being something you have to, you have to engage with, which of course is incredibly challenging in, in, in rocket science. During that interview, I asked the question about, did they think about the, their influencing the output of what they're doing by their own personality and the space mm. that they're in? What, mm. what, did, what did you think about their answer and, or even the question? No, I think, it was, I think it was a very interesting question, actually. I would have liked to have heard about opportunities for um, very alternative views being brought to the table, where as people who are so embedded, I suppose, in the project, but emotionally... Hmm. intellectually um it would be interesting to uh, to let that space uh and project be used by somebody coming to it with a complete fresh set of eyes yeah i, sp- I, sp- uh, I suppose you have to remember it, it is their artwork isn't it i i don't know enough about like the kind of art that brings in that that kind of belongs to everyone that then experiences the art yeah, it's, yeah, it's a little yeah, bit yes. it's a little bit tricky isn't it <laughs> It, it is. So the really, the really sort of challenging philosophical question is that they, you know, they have goals to create a blank canvas, which they've, they've achieved. How blank is that canvas if it's if it's always being carried by the people who have nurtured it, cared for it, and and done such a great job of delivering it? Yeah. Um, but maybe that's tied to the, to the little discussion we had about how the project it would be great to see it moved and used in other locations. Mm. An alternative view, because it was curated and looked after by some other artists or other scientists or engineers. It's maybe the way to respond to that. So whilst it sits in Bristol and is being cared for by Ella and Nikki, it's absolutely their project, but it could be packed up, folded up and, and given to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the Star Wars debate about like George Lucas fiddling around with the films and people going, oh, what an idiot. And it's just like, well, it's, it's his film. He can do what he wants. It's his baby. But it's like, yeah, yeah. But, but, but other people might argue, no, it's not his film anymore. It's it's part of the it's it's our cultural landscape now. You you can't fiddle with it. So yeah, yeah it's it's. Uh, I think that's quite interesting. Well, I mean, he just ripped off Dune anyway. Yeah, absolutely ripped off Dune. So if so, if there's any listeners out there that are huge Star Wars fans that work on the interiors project of the Orion capsule, I am done for. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So Rob, what have you what have you got coming up? What have we got coming up? I am about to go on holiday for a little while, so that's good. Nice. So I'll be taking a break. I'm looking forward to that, uh, but not before I finish a bunch of drawings um, to make uh, geodesic done. Can't you just so that connects nicely? Can't be tats, doesn't it? Yeah, can't you just get Mid Journey to do your geodesic dome? Uh, well, I, c- I could, but it might be tricky to then get a builder to build it to that drawing and then not sue me. <laughs> what so, have you uh, done, uh, Rob? That, uh, that's that's the limits you see of, of AI. Is that? Uh, uh, Who's responsible for that drawing? Oh who, yeah, who goes wrong. Well, that's quite good. You could say, yeah, you'll you just have to sue my um, my uh, partner. Yes, unfortunately, yeah, my yeah. partner doesn't actually exist. I might use that. Actually, I might use that. So yeah, so I've got the pleasure of working on a project that's going to be building two geodesic domes for a community centre. Uh, oh wow! Which are, which are, which are, I'm really enjoying. So I'll finish off those drawings and hopefully uh, getting that built over the autumn. Wow, where's that? Where's that going to be? In Birmingham, in Birmingham, at, yes. uh, just in, near Birmingham City Centre, a place called the H. Baston Reservoir, 
Um, I know it well. So, yeah, it's in a community centre. In fact, they, they call it the reservoir round there. Do you know that? <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reservoir. Yeah. It's like it's not. It doesn't um, even sound brummy, but that's yeah, weird. Well, I hope when it's finished, it will look a little bit like a Martian habitat, perhaps. Wow, that's sat that, there with its 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 classic glazed dome, geodesic dome look. Wow. And people can come along and ask me if I thought about the human condition. <laughs> and you're saying, never thought of it. Sorry, mate. Uh, what? I'm no, just, no, it's just a piece no. of engineering. It's just getting a, well, just getting yeah. the glass in there. I blame Buck, Mr. Fuller. <laughs> yeah. uh, what about you? What have you got coming up? I've got a holiday. I've got a holiday. I've got, oh, yeah, yeah, holiday. Yeah, well, I've got, I'm going to go on holiday and then I'm going to hopefully get this podcast out before I go tomorrow. And then, uh, and then uh, yeah, come back to a mountain of work and a new right. degree. And uh, off I'm running again. Yeah, and good luck with that back in term time for the place. Oh, yes. Can't wait. Can't wait. All right. Right. Thanks, Roger. Bye bye, Sparky. Bye bye. bye. bye.